0: It's the last Sunday of Advent, so this is, we're digging into a big text today. This is the text that's typically read in a lot of different church traditions on Christmas Day, so we're jumping ahead a little bit, and boy, there's a lot of uh, stuff to cover, so we're going to get right into it. I spent probably, the the amount of time I usually spend preparing these things, it was about a quarter of it coming up with the stuff this time, and then 75% of it just deleting stuff and getting rid of things, because there's so many things to go through here. So let's turn to John 1. We're going to read this very, very uh, famous Christmas passage here, starting right at verse 1, we'll go right through verse 18. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your word in uh, maybe a new... Sort of sense with a new sort of sense on our hearts after we read a passage like that, Lord. This is a a passage that's just so rich and so full of so many things, and it's so beyond our comprehension to even begin to understand exactly what's going on here. So, Lord, we just receive it. We receive the mystery of it, and we ask that you can lift up our hearts to uh, see more of you through it, and to understand more of who you are, and to just uh, receive your love that you have for us, that this passage points to very explicitly, and Lord, just help us to know what it means, the the richness of what it means, that at Christmas, the word became flesh, and how that changes everything. So be with us, help us to hear from you, the one true God. In his name, we pray these things, amen. Alright, straight into things. I had a whole, I had a whole like kind of story plan. I was going to connect it to like a Christmas movie and it was going to be all cutesy and everything, but we have no time for that. So we're going right into things. John starts this passage saying, in the beginning. Another famous part of the Bible that starts with in the beginning is chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then John grabs that. That exact wording, in the beginning, was the word. So John's using the exact wording of the biblical creation story to introduce his subject, which is Jesus. He's writing this biography of Jesus. This is how he chooses to introduce it. So in the beginning, this is a a fully updated, revised telling of the creation story itself. He's telling it again, and he wants us to hear it in a new sort of way. So in the beginning was the word. So right away, first few words, we bump into our first real kind of question mark moment. So let's think about words. What's John getting at when he says, in the beginning was the word? What is a word? when you really think about it, the the question of what is a word, it's not an easy thing to right away define because you can't just define it with examples, right? Like I can't just start listing off various words and expect that that's going to explain what a word is. Cat and dog and baby and crying and all that kind of stuff. You can't just say that those are what words are. You can't just list all those things. You can't define it with a visual description either because if I just say, well, a word is a bunch of shapes and lines arranged in such a way that it becomes a word. Like that's, that's not really the full case either because which shapes and which sorts of lines and what sort of way do they have to be organized to become a word? Like That doesn't really get to the whole picture either. That's not going to do the trick. So what makes a word what it is? What is a word? Well, one way of beginning to think about this is that words are things that are used Okay, so that's the difference right there. Words are used, they're employed, they're utilized by persons. Someone uses a word for a purpose. An acting agent uses words to communicate something. Something about themselves, something that they want to say. A word is a unit of self-communication. That's another way to put it. But there's a problem with this. This this points us in that direction, but there's a problem with even this definition... Because words are very uh, imprecise sorts of things. And they're used by by very imprecise sorts of agents, people, humans. So when we speak to one another, we often don't know the exact words to use. Especially if you're talking about something important. You have to try to think of the exact words to use, how to put it out there, how you're going to explain it. And even when we do think that we have the right words, we still don't know if they're going to be perceived in the way that we intend them. So we have this whole kind of trouble with how to use words. I don't know if we, did we get this T.S. Eliot thing up there? Okay, we can throw this up there. Uh, The poet T.S. Eliot, he writes in his poem called Burnt Norton, he says this, Words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden. Under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision. Will not stay in place, will not stay still. So this is a a poet, someone whose job is to craft art with words, and he's talking about the fickleness of words, how difficult they are to get them to hold in place and kind of do the exact thing that you want them to do. They're fickle, imprecise things. They crack and strain, and in the end, because words are these imperfect, imprecise things used by imperfect, imprecise people, we're only able to communicate who we are and what we're actually thinking in a very limited, finite sort of way. That's just the reality that we live in. That's what happens when we use words. Humans fallen, finite humans. So what about God? What about God's word? Lots of passages that we could grab out to talk about the word of the Lord or the word of God. One of them would be uh, Psalm 33, verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their starry host. He speaks a word, it's there. That's what the psalmist is getting at. Isaiah 40, verse 8. This is a famous verse too. It says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So not cracking and breaking. At all. That's not the sense you get from these passages. Not cracking and breaking. Not decaying with imprecision, but standing Forever. It's a fullness there. There's a perfection there with God's word. God doesn't have the trouble with words that we do. It's another way to think of it. He's able to communicate himself with utter clarity. Put himself forward as clear as he wants to when he speaks his word forth. And we need to remember that because it means that when you and I think of Jesus as the word of God, that's what this passage is getting at, we're kind of leaping ahead a little bit here because John writes this whole passage and only at the end do we find that he's actually talking about Jesus. He kind of starts enigmatically at the beginning. But when you and I think of Jesus as the word of God, we don't think of a lesser, downgraded, imprecise aspect of who God is. It's, it's, it's not a cracking, straining, burdensome word. It's a clearly communicated word that God is putting forth. God doesn't have the same trouble with words that we do. His word... Perfectly expresses himself. So this is why uh, the Nicene Creed, one one of the early creeds of the Christian faith, it says Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. They're trying to show this utter unity between the word of God and God himself. Light from light, God from God, true God from true God. And that's why John doesn't just say the word was with God, he says that, the word was with God But he goes on to say, the word was God. This unity that's there. So it makes me think, all of these uh, misconceptions that we may have about an angry, vengeful God, and then this merciful, loving Jesus... You know, like those are common misconceptions that we can have about the Christian faith sometimes. There's this vengeful, angry Father God with the white beard and he's throwing lightning bolts and then you have the merciful Jesus who kind of comes in to rescue us. And it's common for Christians who have been involved in the faith for a long time to still kind of have that sort of picture of things. And when we recognize that God's word utterly communicates himself, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, we realize that that sort of belief has no grounding in biblical reality at all, in Christian truth. At all. The word, the self-communication of God was God. And then John goes on to write, All these things came into being through him. Apart from him was not anything made that was made. Or more literally, what, he, what he's literally saying there is apart from him not one thing has become that has ever become. He's purposely using this word that grabs at all these things. Not one thing has happened that has happened. One thing has become that has ever become. The Word is the one through whom all creation becomes and happens. And this is significant because it means that the reason that you and I can look around us, we can look at the natural world around us and see uh, intelligibility and order and rationality and we can even begin to make sense of it sometimes. We can see pattern. This is all because Apart from the word, and and, and the word, the the word, word, is this translation of a Greek word logos, which can also mean reason or idea. It's something that's kind of immaterial. It's this word logos, it means reason. Apart from this logos, nothing exists. And as a result, all that exists is stamped with a certain order and reason and pattern. It's all held together by the word. It's all created through him. Not one thing has come into being apart from the Logos, John says. And what John is saying here, by the way, is the reason, this is just a little aside, but this is the reason why the modern sciences can even be what they are. Beautiful things, the modern sciences, but the only reason why they can even be what they are is rooted in what John is saying here. The foundational faith commitment of science is that the world isn't fundamentally this chaotic, haphazard, random place from which you can't discern anything. But rather, it's an intelligible, ordered place. And we're so used to thinking that natural laws, natural laws just have to be there. You know, the world has to have these natural laws through which we can make sense. Reality has to be reasonable. But why? Like, why does it have to be that way? What guarantee do we have of that? There's no real self-evident reason to think that, apart from the fact that we, along with the rest of creation, we all come into being through the word through the Logos, and therefore we have this inherent sense in us that the world is an intelligible, ordered place. Because we're all created through him. We're all created through the word. So this is just a really cool reminder, even as you read this passage, that's, that's about incarnation and about the Christmas story, it's a cool reminder of remembering that Jesus himself quite literally even makes something like modern science the thing that it is. The beautiful thing that it is. The useful thing that it is. If we jump ahead to verse 10, the text says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. And here, John is using poetic language to sum up the whole idea of human sin. This is kind of a one-sentence summary of what sin is and what it means. The world that's created through Jesus doesn't know him doesn't recognize him, doesn't see him for who he is. And it's as though in the first five verses, John is sort of setting up this whole idea of just how much the world is designed to resonate and sync up with the word. If you read those first five verses, kind of with that idea in mind, you see that. The word is in the beginning. All things happen through the word. In the word was life and light, and this light enlightens everybody who's ever lived. So he's getting at all of this stuff and then it's this whole kind of idea of the world is just made to resonate with this word. To recognize him for who he is. And then it all crashes down in verse 10. The world didn't know him. Didn't know him. Not, not, not kind of grasped it but didn't fully get it. Just didn't know him at all. And then in verse 11, his own didn't receive him. The world whose very life and existence depended on the word didn't know the word. And it's just like, it's this definitive example of tragic irony. This, this obvious kind of setup here, yet it's not happening. We know what should happen and it's not happening. It's the one sentence summary of human sin. We have to remember, sin isn't what it is because we are these arbitrary beings who've somehow been given these arbitrary rules that we've decided to live by and every once in a while they just happen to break down and we don't don't follow them and we happen to break these rules. That's not what makes sin what it is. Sin is what it is. It's the tragedy that it is because at our deepest core we're made for Jesus. At our deepest core we're made for Jesus. We're made to resonate with him, to enjoy him, to rest in him, to see echoes of who he is all over the place to see this imprint of the Logos all over the world around us, to rest in him, to see echoes of him, to see his fingerprints all over everything, and yet we don't. So it's not just this idea of you have some rules, you didn't obey them, it's that there's this beautiful purpose that's meant to be there, and we're missing out. We're missing out. Not just arbitrarily angering this God who seems to be vengeful sometimes. And as a result of this, we become less of who we actually were meant to be less of who we were actually created to be, less human when we sin, when we don't recognize the word for who he is. But then John, he gives this good news coming out of this tragedy. So again, in in this whole prologue, he's just summing up a lot of things. Some people call this prologue an overture because it's kind of like John is grabbing at all these different themes and ideas that are going to come up later on in the gospel. And so he's just compressing everything into this really dense form. So right after this bad news about what sin is, he gets to the good news in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So notice a couple of things here. When he talks about the right to become children of God, this isn't a right in the modern sense of an inherent right, an inalienable thing that just belongs to us by virtue of existence. He's not talking about that. There's there's nothing inherent about this. Notice that this is a right that's given gave the right to become children of God. And it's given contingently. It's given to those who received the word. There's a condition. So really what it is, is it's a privilege. Some translations actually say that. He gave the privilege of becoming children of God. And another thing, notice that the privilege, the grace shown here in this passage, far outweighs what you might expect to see. I think we should notice that. Especially when you think of those first verses and the way he's building up this expectation that we should all totally understand. We should totally get who the word is and what he's about. The the grace that's shown here totally outweighs what you might expect to see. Because it's not his own didn't receive him, but some did receive him, period. Full stop. It's that those who received him also received something else. They received the great gift of and privilege of becoming God's very own child. So if you've received Jesus, what this tells us is that we should never doubt our status as a beloved child of God. Don't doubt that. That's given to you. That's a gift. That's a privilege that's given over to you. God's given that to you. That's yours. Don't doubt that just like a good dad... God the Father delights in you, cherishes you, and he wants what's best for you infinitely more than you'll ever know. That's what it means to have this privilege of being God's child. All of this uh, connects us to the pinnacle of this whole passage. Verse 14, you see the pinnacle, when John writes, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. We need to realize that this is absolutely the the record scratch sort of moment where John is building up this whole sort of thing that everything just comes to a grinding halt. It really is. Everything stops. The momentum that John had going building all of this, he just lost it because now he sounds like an idiot with what he's saying here. The word became flesh. We expect it. We're used to that because we get it. We just say, okay, quit talking about the word that's confusing. Get to Jesus. And so when he does, we like it. But this is a moment that would have brought a screeching halt to the momentum that he's building up. Remember, we know that Jesus is this word. John hasn't brought that up yet. The word became flesh. How can the word become flesh? How can the word become flesh? It's the word. The whole point of the word is that it's this divine idea in the mind of God. Or it's this divine creative utterance that he speaks when the stars are created. It's this agent through which he uses it. How can the word actually become flesh is a very scandalous thing what he's saying here but the word this utterly full perfect self-communication that god has spoken became flesh my goodness i just like i wish we could talk about just the incarnation and the things that the church has taught about the incarnation we should talk about that for three months leading up to christmas because there's so much stuff here because what he says here is not only just that the word became flesh but he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory Dwelt among us, we've seen his glory. Biblical echoes all over the place with just this statement. Because the Greek word for dwelt, he dwelt among us, is skenao, and it means to set up camp, or literally to to put up a tent or a tabernacle. So you hear some people talk about he tabernacled among us. He set up his tent among us. So right away here is the echo of the final chapters of the book of Exodus, where Moses sets up this tent of meeting. This tent of meeting where God's very presence and glory is going to dwell. But even then, God's glory can only be experienced in this ultra-limited, truncated measure. That's what we see in the book of Exodus. Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says, I'll let you catch a hint of it. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, I'll cover you with my hand, and even then I'll only let you catch a hint of it because man can't see me and live. When Moses asks to see God's glory, but then... Here, John says, we saw it. We saw his glory. Dwelt among us, we saw his glory. And the very, very important thing to catch when we read this, when we compare it to the book of Exodus, the very important thing to catch here is that the implication of this isn't, okay, well, we can see his glory now because he's less glorious than he used to be. You know, he was more intense, more glorious back in those Old Testament days or something like that. That's not the implication at all that John is getting at. Rather, The implication is as John says in verse 18. When he says no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's explained him. It's not less. It's not a diminished view of who God is. He's saying that the word made flesh doesn't diminish God. He explains God. He makes God knowable in an entirely new full way. This is the incredibly foundational Christian teaching of the Incarnation. The word made flesh. The word literally means enfleshment when we talk about Incarnation. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, takes on flesh and blood and bone, and in so doing, doesn't at all cease being God. So it's it's simple, it's easy stuff. We all got it right there, just like that. What the early church said about this was that what he already was, he remained, and what he was not, he assumed, he took on. So it's saying he didn't at all cease being God in any way. He assumed this flesh fully remaining to be God. And this is something that they struggled to articulate for hundreds of years. So, the incarnation. What significance does that have for us this Christmas, this Advent? This teaching that is so central and in a lot of ways basic to the Christian faith. God sent his son in Jesus. Like it's this kind of basic thing to the Christian faith. What does it mean? What's it for? What does it do? And one of the immediate and correct answers to this question that might come to mind is, well, okay, we need Christmas. We need the incarnation because we need Easter. That's something that's said very often. And that's, that's very true. The incarnation, it happens so that Jesus can go to the cross, You know, Jesus can't go to the cross unless he first becomes human. And this is so, so true and so, so important. And we'll we'll probably even talk about that this Christmas Eve. It's a very, very important thing. We need to remember that every year. But one of the things that's very, very interesting about this whole teaching of the incarnation is that in the first 500 years of the church's history, one of the main questions wasn't, what does the cross do and how does that work? How does the the cross actually operate? What does that mean? That wasn't one of the main questions that they were asking. But one of the main questions that dogged them every single time they met to try to figure stuff out was what does it mean that God himself became human? How do we make sense of that? And not even how do we make sense of that, but what truths do we need to hold to so that we don't neglect anything that we need to be preaching and learning and worshiping about God? What does it mean that God became human? So this Advent, this is just something that I've been trying. I've personally been trying to soak in a lot more. Just the struggle that the Christians that have gone before us have had to try to make sense of. What does it mean that God became flesh? So just to try to tie some of this together, I want to look at a couple of things that the incarnation means or can mean for us. So the best way to intro this, obviously, is a Chuck Norris joke. That's clearly the best way. Super clear, obvious segue here. I'm very good at segues if you haven't noticed. I know how to do that very well. Okay, so Chuck Chuck Norris jokes. If You know what a Chuck Norris joke is? Chuck Norris, he's like a ninja. He's a a tough guy. He was Walker, Texas Ranger. He can roundhouse kick you in the face. The whole point of a Chuck Norris joke is you just talk about this amazing thing that Chuck Norris can do that nobody else can do because he's Chuck Norris. Okay, some of you are very unfamiliar with what I'm talking about. But just try to follow along. This is going to connect back in very, very well. Honestly, this isn't just trying to grasp at something. I was like, this honestly does connect a little bit. For real. Okay, so here's the Chuck Norris joke that came to mind. i got to find where I'm at here. Chuck Norris joke that came to mind here is, uh, okay, when Chuck Norris jumps in a lake, Chuck Norris doesn't get wet. The lake gets Chuck Norris. Okay, so that's the idea. He's Chuck Norris. He makes the lake Chuck Norris. That's what's going on there, okay? So just, that was good. Now let's try to connect this back here. Uh, Because the people who came up with this joke probably didn't realize, honestly, honestly, this really truly does echo one of the things that the early church fathers taught about the incarnation of Jesus. It really does. So now that we kind of have that analogy in mind, we can think about this and make sense of it. Because this is something that they talked about a lot. They said that when the word becomes flesh, when the word becomes flesh, God doesn't just become human. Okay, that happens, but God doesn't just become human. Humanity itself also gets infected, as it were, with God's very nature. His very self. Humanity gets Jesused. That, like, that's honestly the way that they explain it. They saw it this way. We don't see it this way. This might seem like a very foreign thought. Like, What, what does that have to do? God becoming flesh, what does that have to do with me just being a human? And unless I have faith and unless I become a Christian and that sort of thing. But think about it. Prior to the incarnation, prior to the incarnation, humans are humans, God is God. Period. Okay? After the incarnation, God is still God, humans are still humans, absolutely, but now, as a result of the incarnation, humans share in the same sort of being that God himself is. They share in the same sort of being that God himself is belongs to that wasn't the case before that's a new thing and the early teachers of the church caught that and they said there must be something there the fact that this has happened isn't just some small thing this means something in and of itself so with this whole idea in mind a guy named Irenaeus uh, writing about 80 years after John wrote his gospel Irenaeus said how can man pass into God unless God has passed into man Athanasius is another guy who wrote in the 4th century and he said, God became man so that man might become God. And so what they're doing here is the, the, the idea behind all of these sorts of statements is the belief that God humbled himself, condescended himself to take on human form so that he could draw us back into the life of God. And they saw a connection between those two things. And what all of this teaches us is that the incarnation isn't just A means to an end. In a lot of ways it is. A very, very important end. An end that's central to the Gospel of John, in fact. But it isn't just a means to an end. It actually does something in and of itself. It makes it so humanity can share in the life of God. Humanity has been infected with God's very nature in the Incarnation. So another difference that the Incarnation makes to our lives... And this is something that's talked about a lot in the book of Hebrews. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see this all over the place. Because of the incarnation, God in Jesus knows what human life is like, He gets it. He's a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews talks about. And you know, it's very easy to think okay, well, well, God's omniscient, He's all knowing, He knows absolutely everything. So, God, God has always known everything, so, what's the difference? Why does he need to become a human to get it, to really understand humanity? But I think there is a difference. Because when you think of Jesus' life, when you think of the things that happened to him, when you think of what you read in the Gospels, the stuff that Jesus went through, the stuff that Jesus went through shows us that on an experiential level, on a life-lived level, Jesus knows more than we ever could. What it's like to be hated. What it's like to be afraid. And what it's like to be utterly abandoned and alone. If you're not seeing that when you're reading the Gospels, you need to read them again. Jesus knows more than we ever could. Those human feelings, those human emotions, those human struggles. God in Jesus knows those things. And it's with this same heart that went through those experiences that he loves us. He loves us with that same heart. And this is something that has just blown my mind this Christmas. That Jesus loves us presently with a human heart. The ascended and risen Jesus loves us with a human heart. He loves us with a human heart that's felt pain, loneliness, and abandonment. And the more that I've dwelt on this, the more I've realized that this just helps to make the love of God so much more intelligible to me. It makes me be able to begin to wrap my mind a little bit more around what it means that God in Jesus loves me. Okay, just have a couple minutes left. Children's storybook time. This is a book called Guess How Much I Love You. It's a book that I read to my daughter often. We read it to her quite a bit. Okay, this is going to make a little connection here. And in this story, some of you might know the story. In this book, there's a big nut brown hair and little nut brown hair. So, daddy rabbit and baby rabbit. And the whole point of the story is that throughout the book, the little baby rabbit will say, Guess how much I love you? To the dad rabbit. And then he'll say, Well, I love you as high as I can reach. And then the, the daddy rabbit will say, Well, I love you as high as I can reach. Well, I love you as high as I can hop. Well, I love you as high as I can hop. A little rabbit keeps on saying, oh, well, that's good hopping. I wish I could hop like that. And then finally, at the very end, this keeps on going until at the very end. I'm just going to read the, the final bit here. At the very end, uh, little nut brown hair looked out beyond the thorn bushes into the big dark night. Nothing could be farther than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said, and he closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, said big nut brown hair. That's very, very far. Big nut brown hair set a little nut brown hair into his bed of leaves. He leaned over and kissed him goodnight. Then he lay down close by and whispered with a smile, I love you right up to the moon and back. And, it, and we were reading this last night to our daughter. I'm an emotional dad. We are reading to our daughter last night, and I'm getting more emotional than usual about it because I'm preparing this message, and I'm thinking about all this stuff. I'm thinking about what it means that Jesus loved me with a human heart. And it just, it just hit me as we were reading this book. This, this little rabbit, he can see his daddy's arms. And he can get it. He can perceive it. They're bigger than his. They're just like his, though. His arms are just like his, but they're bigger. You can see his dad hop. He hops just like he does, but he hops higher. He can get it. He can feel it. He can see it. And as we were reading this, I thought, this is what it means that God in Jesus loves me with a human heart heart that became flesh Jesus loves me with a heart that's just like mine but it's perfect heart that's just like mine but it's sinless heart that's just like mine but it's also God's own heart so the thing that I want us to take away from all of this is that God's word never fails Jesus is God's word Jesus is God's word became flesh became human and it's with this human heart that he loves us. So let's think about that this Advent as we come into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day this week. Let's pray together. Lord we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that in Jesus you did become flesh. Lord we ask that you can teach us to just be humbled by that uh, to understand that you, you literally love us more than we'll ever know. No matter how we want to articulate our love to you, or no matter how we want to think about your love for us, it's always going to be greater. And Lord, just help us to understand what it means that your son Jesus sympathizes with us. He knows what it means to struggle, to go through things. And it's because of that that um, the Christian faith is just so vastly different than than anything else, than any other answer we can seek in this life. Lord, to those of us here who just need another deep uh, dose of your love, please just reveal that to us. Because we know that there are so many here who just need to be touched by that. You literally do love them to the moon and back, farther than they'll ever understand. And so, by your spirit, just let that seal into us today. pray these things in Jesus' strong name.